Welcome to the Coach Fury Podcast. This is where fitness and geekdom collide. It's time to live long, be strong, and die mighty. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 42 of the show. Today's guest is somebody that I met while teaching in Austin, Texas. His name's Ben Marvin. And Ben stood out at a course that I was teaching as just being not only incredibly strong, but also a very bright, smart coach. And I'm very excited for you to hear from him and uh, what he has going on. But before we talk with Ben, let's talk about me some more, right? The Rule June sale at Fury Industries is happening. I'm having sales on online coaching, personal training, and small group classes. Head on over to CoachFury.com for all that info. You can go directly to CoachFury.com slash RuleJune or just visit the site and there's a page there as well. Also, let's talk about some courses coming up. The HKC is around the corner July 15th at MFF Bowery. The DVRT Workshop in Brooklyn, Brooklyn Health and Performance, really excited to be teaching this at that place for the first time, is on August 12th. Original Strength returns to MFF Bowery on September 16th. The DVRT Level 1 and Level 2 certifications at MSC Strength in Boston are happening on September 22nd and 23rd. We have the Tokyo RKC sold out October 27th and 28th. And then Original Strength is back to Tokyo on November 3rd. And stay tuned for the RKC coming back to NYC at my friend Marco's place, Momentum Fitness, in March. So registration is not open for that one, but start prepping that snatch test, getting those presses in. Cool? Hey, everybody. Thank you for listening. I think that's enough about what I've got going on. Again, you can track everything, including the show, at CoachFury.com. But enough about me. Let's talk with Ben. So, Ben, why don't you tell the listeners, other than your first name, your full name, name, rank, and serial number, what do you, what do, you do? Where are you at? Uh, so my name is Ben Marvin. I'm a strength and conditioning coach in Austin, Texas. I work with... Everyone from semi-professional fighters through retired people just trying to stay in shape and pretty much everything in between. Awesome. So, folks, Ben and I met at a DVRT Level 1 and Level 2 certification weekend out at our buddy Matt's place, Dow Health and Fitness in Austin, Texas. And even leading up to that, there's when you go to teach a course, especially when it's, it's out of your town, right? You never quite know what you're, what you're getting yourself into in terms of who the attendees are going to be. I'm very fortunate at this point. I tend to always know at least one to two people. And I knew, you know, Matt Furman, the owner of Dow, the host, is an old friend of mine. We go back from 2011. Uh, so, you know, there's always like a comfort level. Well, there's usually a comfort level. But then there's usually someone that stands out and you've had the benefit of seeing some of those folks or here, I should say, seeing them. It's a podcast. Sorry, listeners. You've had the benefit of listening to some of the people that have stood out to me. Becky Cody shines as an example of someone that stood out when she attended Erica Hurst, who's been on this show, um, you know, amongst others. And Ben is one of those cats that shows up at a course fully prepared to not only pass it, but to exceed expectations of what it is. And, and that shines out to an instructor who's into town or, uh, you know, even if it's local and just sees like, holy crap, this person put their work in and they're ready to go. And that's not to take away from some people who put their work in and don't, you know, leave with their certain shirt that day. But Ben was impressive. And we got to hanging out. He, he drove me around a little bit. He's, he's very good at finding <laughs> excellent food places. In Austin, Texas, which is a good way to get to my, my heart. But we became friends hanging out there. And then I was just out for original strength in May. 
And Ben not only helped drive me around a bit there, but he actually put me up with him and his wife's place. They've got a beautiful home in Austin. And we had done a podcast from his, from his kitchen, his dining room area. But unfortunately, like I had this new mic and it didn't work out. So apologies for that. And I'm excited for you to hear about Ben because I think he does come in with like a, 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 a I don't want to say he's just a positive attitude. I think there's like sometimes there's a positive attitude and there's a strong attitude. And when somebody has a strong and a positive attitude together, that's a pretty powerful thing. And I think Ben exemplifies that. Ben, I'm rambling. I apologize because we didn't talk about this last time. <laughs> um, but, you know, if, I, if you follow Ben on social media, you'll see him do many strong things. But unlike some of us that get caught up and just like check out how strong I am, you also see his people that he trains doing strong things. He shows up in a room and is confident that he could do stuff or at least, you know, try stuff with a, a high likelihood of success. So, Ben, where would you say, this might be a little bit of an awkward question, though. So where do you think you got that mindset of like, you know, really investing in your training, pursuing strength, but with moving on top of it? I don't want to separate strength in maximal versus strength, maximal strength and movement capability. Where do you think that drive or training philosophy for yourself started? So I've just always had like an intense hatred for failing at things. So anytime I go to a workshop or even if it's just going into my own workout, I always want to make sure that I'm probably over prepared for them, whether it's just studying material, practicing all the skills or usually a combination of both. So like going into the DVRT workshop, like you were saying, I had gotten to a point where I could have done the test with the hundred pound sandbag, even though I only needed a test with 80 because I wanted to make sure that there was no way I would fail it on that day. And I'll always do the same thing going into like the RKC, PCC, any of the other workshops. But on top of just the physical, like you said, I always want to, I've read all the books related to them. I read Josh Hankins book before that. I've read blog posts from you and um, some of the other like um, Dose Remedios. I read some of his stuff going into the DVRT. So I always just want to make sure that I'm ready because I never want to embarrass myself by doing something wrong, especially in public. <laughs> it's a really tricky thing because I've, I have, you know, I've always gone in with that attitude. And then, you know, I've had some pretty significant failures at courses in my life. Um, mm -hmm. And I've learned a lot of lessons from them. But I think it, it's that attitude of like going in to attack it minus injury. Like I've had people that come in. Yeah, you know, for hurt. Sure. you know they know they're banged up, so we're gonna we're gonna wait some things out because it's better to you know mm -hmm. chill now, take in the information and, and fight. But I always I go in with the intent, and then sometimes things don't work out, and you know you get it up at, at the later event. But mm -hmm. uh, lately, you know, one of the things that happens is you know every time I teach like a say an RKC or an RKC two, there'll be a round where I'm kind of involved with a few people that either just missed passing or or working up and there's a lot of like just missed it and there's just missed it's that you traveled and it just didn't work out. Like so, travel is a weird one. You can't really predict how even like a five hour flight or a four hour flight is going to mess with your system. Um, oh, for sure. And you know, part of that is I think mental attitude. And sometimes I think I fail at that. Actually, I think I let things get to me. Um, but I think, you know, part of that is very real that like sitting in a plane, you know, a four hour flight means you've probably been commuting for about six to seven hours, but it's, you know, getting to the airport, waiting for your plane, all that stuff. There's a weird there. And then you throw in the stress of being in a new room, whatever. Uh, and people say I'm making excuses, but I've seen it with enough hundreds of people at this point that I know 
that that is a thing and I've become aware of it because I used to blow it off until I, I failed at something miserably. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but in terms of the prep, I don't know where it came in and I don't know if it's just because there's so many things, but it seems like a lot of people aren't going with not wanting that hundred percent guarantee and coming in with just mites, right? Like, you know, if you know, you got to snatch a kettlebell, 24 K kettlebell, a hundred times to pass a snatch test, you probably shouldn't think you're going to do it. If you've only done 75 at training at home. Yeah. Right. Well, it was I mean, odd. I actually, not to say he didn't do a good job there, but I had a guy during one of the workshops I did who came in and never touched a kettlebell at all before. And so he made tremendous progress over the weekend, but obviously wasn't ready for any of the testing then. And I think when I talked to the instructor later, he said he never even came back and did it. So I guess he just wanted the information, but it seemed odd to me. Yeah. You know, I, I know I've been where, in DVRT in particular, let's say, is, you know, people will come very unprepared for that test. The DVRT clean and press test, folks, is depending on your, your gender, your body weight, you're going to do a certain reps of clean to push press with an ultimate sandbag, anywhere from uh, 40 to 100 pounds, 40 to 50 times, depending, again, weight, gender. And it's brutal. I think it's a lot harder than a snatch test because it's basically two complete movements so it mm-hmm. takes up more time, even though you're doing, uh, you know, half the rest, half, half the amount of reps. Uh, and I've seen people, you know, pull through and gut check through it just because that a brute strength. It's usually mm-hmm. not the prettiest thing to see. But then I've just seen a lot of very strong people think it's just going to carry over whatever they do at home carries over. And it doesn't, you know, because there's a skill behind it. Mm-hmm. So I think when, when someone like yourself comes in prepared to go heavier, you know, it's kind of wonderful. It's I try to get it doesn't always work out because there's timing, you know, uh, timing involved clearly in strength training time. But, you know, I try to, I hope that everybody can kind of get their snatch test within three weeks before the cert, at least once. Mm -hmm. Uh, That is a, it's going to be a confidence boost when they have it, knowing they've done it once before B they're going to get to know that kind of dark mental place you go to get through it right now that the level of that darkness is different for people, but like some people, like I know for myself, I don't love it. Mm -hmm. I'm actually right now. One of the goals, my training goals is to try to get, as comfortable with a snatch test as possible. Um, it's a long-term goal where I don't, I don't want to even have to think about it uh, on a good or bad value. I just want to really think about it as just something it gets done, right? Yeah. Um, what advice do you have for people in terms of training benchmarks? Let's say, let's say for like a snatch test, because you've gone through the RKC with Max Shank. What do you think is like a, a benchmark that you should or should not try a snatch test if you have not achieved X prior to the cert. I mean, it kind of depends. Like I've heard Max will talk about how being able to do a few reps heavier is going to do a lot more good for you than being able to do say 150 reps with 12 kilos when you have to test with 24. So fully agree with that. It kind of comes down to like, if somebody's, you know, never done the exact thing, but they've done multiple sets of 10 reps with 32 kilos with minimal rest, I would say, yeah, you probably still have a good chance. I personally wouldn't feel confident unless, like you said, I had done it at least one time recently before that. But I know when we hosted an RKC at my gym about a year ago, Um, one of our other instructors hadn't done the full thing going in, but he'd done enough just like 
sets of 50 to 60 that he, I guess, felt good enough with that, and it worked out for him. So. Oh, that's awesome. I yeah. think that's that's fairly rare. Is is he is he one of those cats that generally has like a uh, a good endurance background? Yeah, so he played semi-professional rugby for a while. So he's just big, strong and endurant all on top of it. So the big thing for him was just more relaxing and not blowing out too soon. So Yeah. Just a little bit of work on that was enough to kind of get him to find the pacing he needed to succeed. Yeah, I feel like if you haven't, you know, certainly heavy one-arm swings, and if you do start to build up heavy snatches, I think it's wonderful. I think the heavy snatch is something a lot of people don't venture at. I think a lot of people hit up to their snatch test weight and then don't really push beyond that often, at least in what I've seen. Yeah. I could be wrong. I don't know if that's like, you know, um, in the location specific in any way. But I just I don't see too many people pushing twenty you know from from uh, in our weight class like pushing too many twenty eight or up snatches and when mm-hmm. you do it tends to be seems a little bit more like a novelty um, as opposed yeah. to but I know like you know when I train I generally when I start to build up a snatch test and, and this is what I'm going through right now is I start actually really light you know like I probably like sixty percent of the snatch test weight just to build up a cadence build up a rhythm and then. You know, I'll generally start at, say, eight reps on the minute. And then on that last minute, knowing I have, you know, a bunch of reps that I have to make up, I just see how many I get. And I usually come pretty close. And then the next day, not the right day after, but the next training day, I'll try to fill out the gaps, right? So I'll just try to do 10-10 on the side on the minute Mm -hmm. until it's done. And then I go up a bell. So then I'm building that cadence. Now, I think a lot of people might hit that bell and then just never go past it. But I've done 28K snatch tests. You know, there was a time uh, years ago now, I can't really claim that I would do this now, but I, I went for uh, the tactical strength challenge before Strong First fully took it over. Um, I think it was even before the split had happened. I did one and uh, I tried the elite level and, you know, I trained a 32K snatch test. You know, I got 92 reps and torn hands uh, <laughs> to, to show for it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's true. If you can build up to comfortable sets of five with a 32, you know, think of the weight differential and, 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 and lack of fatigue you're going to feel doing multiple reps with the 24. The trick is mm-hmm. being really in a position where you're strong enough and ready to go to a 32. I think that's like a little bit of where we're with kettlebells, with half sizes and people trying to crush weights, um, mm-hmm. hitting PRs and stuff. We're, we're missing that base foundations that I think existed a few, like even as much as only four to six years ago. I think people stayed yeah. in more realistic before trying to hop like you'd go and own the 24 you go and own the 28 and then you'd pinch at the 32 and then it would go up versus like i got a 28 for once let's try a 36 for once mm-hmm. yeah and so that's something i'll do especially when i'm doing my you know 20 24 for the really high reps i'll usually get a warm-up set or two of you know like you said maybe five per side but using about 40 to 44 and because then after that if i have to do 100 reps with 24 at least the first half before I start getting tired feels like I'm just floating a feather around compared to 97 pounds. Yeah. It's interesting how you can approach these things. Um, I remember sort of in the early days of strong first, um, you know, when the split was happening and and I was still on the strong first instructors, Facebook page, this whole thing blew up about uh, double kettlebell snatches 
and mm-hmm. how, you know, I know I was taught by Brett, both you can pull them down into a rack position from the top, right? Then back yeah. into the hinge all the way up top. Or if you feel strong enough and confident enough, you can, you know, drop them back into the hinge from the top, like you would a, a single arm snatch. Mm-hmm. And when I was training and a lot of people got like, oh, that's so crazy, unsafe and blah, blah, blah. But it's like, well, that really depends on how strong and if you're ready, right? So when you talk about, you know, making something feel light for me, I knew with my hands that I couldn't do high volume with a 32 K -K very often because, Mm. you know, no matter what, and, and the bigger bells, at least then the the grit, it wasn't just the bell size got bigger, the the texture of the paint got bigger with it. So Mm -hmm. even if I had as relatively loose grip as I could for, you know, a relatively heavy bell, my hands were getting fatigued. So I started doing double 16 and double 20 K snatches dropping from the top so that I was learning how to decelerate with the hips and create all that force with the hips. So now mm-hmm. I'm in that 79 to 88 K, you know, 88 pound range, but my hands aren't dealing with that type of wear and tear. So on one hand, yeah. people are like yelling like, Hey, that's so unsafe to drop things. And, and they weren't focusing this at me. I just think, you know, uh, creating an open mind to challenge yourself, like what's a solution. So one way to make a 24 K feel lighter is to do more reps, to add more volume. And the other way is to, build low volume at a 28 and then a 32. And I think mm-hmm. it's cool. I, I love that you brought that up because I don't think people look at it that much, you know, in terms of like, even outside of the, the snatch test, I think a lot of people, when it comes to like they're pressing, mm-hmm. you know, they're just eking by. So in the RKC, you have to press four per side, I guess strong first is probably still five per side. I could be wrong. It's been a long time. Um, but like you shouldn't ideally just have, a max count of five reps per side, like that 24K, ideally you're doing it eight to 10 per side with good form. So that yeah. when you're in the test and you're under fatigue, man, you know, that fatigue might kill off four or five reps, but you still have the reps to, to pass. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that happens enough. I feel like maybe we chase PRs too much as opposed to the volume on that stuff. Yeah. Well, it's the same in the RKC too, when you're doing the one, like the max clean and press that, I would see people coming in and their one rep max is what they need to do rather than by the time I did it, I'd built up for me, it was 40 kilos and I'd done it, I think four or five times on my right and three or four on my left. Now that's like, that's wonderful. But there is that, I will admit like there's a, there's a curve on some of those, those test weights where I just don't think the reps build as mm. fast. I mean, I'm like the famous, well, I shouldn't say famous. It's in like the smallest world. Like my first blog post ever, uh, was my fail of my half body weight press it was a 44 K at the time. And I couldn't get a sing signal single. And I think at most I've only done maybe two or three per side and I've never been able to rep a beast, but I've gotten a beast up. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, it, on the flip side of that, if it, even if it is your one rep max, like you better hope, like say it's a 40 K, you better hope that 36 isn't another one rep max. Like the 36 damn well should be a work weight. Um, yeah. So that if you do have to, you know, it's kind of like there's that shift when it's like a snatch test versus like, a, you know, you want to have a little bit of, of pure knowledge. Whereas for a heavy press for like an RKC2 or an SFG2, you could view that as a power lifting meet in a way where you've done all the prep, but you're going to actually try to hit something you haven't done before. I understand that. But again, I do come in from that. Like, I want to know that I've had it at least once or twice. I want to have that visualization, if not more, even if it's not reps that I can do clean singles because it just builds ownership. And a lot of the times when I'm writing programs now for people that are, you know, still trying to get their press either post-cert or pre-cert, 
you know, it's just, it's, it's volume, you know, it's, it's a, it's a finding like a 70% max bell and working higher reps for sets, um, with good form. And then finding that, you know, strength bell where we're doing ladders, where we're getting a lot of reps in, but we're doing like one, two, threes, one, two, threes or something like that. I'm a big fan of that. Yeah, um, for sure. Where do you think the whole chasing strength came from? Like the, the, the rush to get there as opposed to the process. I don't know. Cause I see it all the time too. Like we'll have people in our gym. We have some powerlifters that actually they're not even the worst among them, but we'll get the people that are, Oh, I maxed out at you know, 175 on bench last week. I should max out at 185. And I'm like, why not try and get that to two or three before you worry about the next rep? But yeah, I see it all the time. And I think it's just this whole mentality that everyone has that you always have to do more, but rather than more reps at lower weight, it's always just, I want the biggest number I can put up. Do you, I've never thought of it this way. Do you think in any way, I've always thought for some reason, I think in kettlebell land, at least uh, the half sizes allow people to push probably a little quicker than they would obviously without them. But you think social media and trying to like post up PRs and stuff, whether it's of somebody you're training or, um, or yourself, do you think that leads to some of this rush to get something out there just to show I'm sure it contributes at least some because, I mean, you know, everyone always wants to be able to put up that video of, hey, here's my new PR. Everyone, I want all this approval from it. And I I mean, I'll admit that I do that every now and then. Like, I get excited when I did something new and I want everyone else to know about it too. So, yeah. I I think it's okay to celebrate victories. Like, I post something up every now and then. I think that's like totally fine. And it lets some people know that you're out there. And that, like, you know, I, I know for me coming off of whether, you know, uh, dealing with my thyroid stuff, I posted some things, you know, I was like, shit, like I'm on this comeback track and that's great. But it's also, it's funny because mm-hmm. some of my comeback things are like real small because I had a health issue. Like nobody's going to appreciate it outside of <laughs> me. Like, you know <laughs> what I mean? Like, like I finally got like a 40 K get up back and that doesn't sound like a big number at all. It's certainly not anywhere near what my heaviest get up's been, but mm-hmm. considering a year ago I was dumping a 20 K because I was tremoring thanks to my thyroid, you know, that's a huge victory yeah. for me, but I'm not like, you know, posting a video about it, but I guess I'm bragging about it right now on a podcast. I don't know. I'm realizing sometimes <laughs> I come off hypocritical and folks like call me out on it. If it is, if it's not coming across that way, cool. Um, but I, I know that I try to like, I'll, I'll have a victory in the training room mm-hmm. that I'm like, oh, maybe I should have shot that just to have it. And then I'm like, wow, you know, that's really a victory for me. I, nobody else is necessarily going to appreciate that or, you know, outside of my immediate family. Yeah. And that's all right. I'm also trying to be like, you know what, what's a really important in, in training land. And uh, I apologize, podcast listeners, you're going to hear me talk about this a lot. Um, w- what's really important about being good in trainer land is being good in trainer land and not what got, what gets posted. And I would love to see us all, myself included, take a little bit of that back. But that said, like I mentioned in the beginning, you post some really cool stuff. Um, and what I like about the stuff you post, Ben, is two things. You're, you're a nerd for like <laughs> non-traditional forms of strength training that I don't think are gimmicky. I think they're legitimate, right? So that's one thing that I like. You're into a lot of stuff, and we're going to get into that a little bit in a moment. Mm-hmm. But you also do post up your clients doing the same things at their level, Whereas I think yeah. it's one thing for me to show, like, I just did this heavy ass bent press or something. And then you'll never see somebody I train doing that. 
um, versus like, you're actually like, this is what I do. And this is how my people are training too. And they're thriving on it. That's, mm-hmm. that's, do you see that as well as I do sometimes that there seems to be a disconnect showing versus like a, a coach will show what, what mm-hmm. we're working on or what we're good or what we think expresses strength. But then you, you either never see their clients or their clients are never doing the thing you're seeing. Yeah. And I have some clients cause I like, I've gone into maces quite a bit and I try and push them or, you know, encourage my clients to try them out, but some of them just have no desire to, and I won't force them into something they don't want to, but a lot of them do see and like, wow, that looks really cool. It looks fun. I want to try it. So I've seen its benefits on myself. And so I always want to try and teach anything that I can that I think will be helpful. Yeah. You know, it's interesting going back, you know, kettlebells, it's pretty easy to get people to get a buy-in on a kettlebell now. But I know when I started about 10 years ago, um, eight years ago, it really wasn't that Mm -hmm. easy with some people, um, especially outside of a martial arts gym and a martial arts gym, there's already a little bit more of a cavalier attitude of like trying rugged, tough stuff, right. Just by nature of where you are. Um, now that seems to be easy. I know sometimes with sandbags, with the ultimate sandbags, we run into that. Um, Mm. fortunately now that system's so laid out that like, you know, we can, we can address that pretty easily with the proper regression or, or, you know, uh, dimension of the ultimate sandbag or something. Do you find that the maces are more intimidating than say a kettlebell? Like, does it freak people out at first? I think it does a little bit to some people, especially, you know, if you see, like me or if they see another good coach swinging a 40, 44 pound mace around and they pick it up and they can't even hold it. But once I teach them and show them proper progressions, like you said, using, you know, a seven, 10, maybe a 15 pound mace. And they realize that, Oh, this isn't that scary. I can do this. I think it becomes a different story. Once they realize that it's not always just, you know, looking like a barbarian about to kill someone, but it's just something that's good for their shoulders, good for their upper back. It, it makes them feel looser up there. Let, let, let's take a step into this because we talked a lot, a, a lot about mace work actually in the beginning. What was your introduction to, to the mace? Because they do seem to be becoming increasingly popular. And uh, mm-hmm. I know I my, myself, I, now that it's summer after talking with you, I actually want to buy one. I don't have the room to really use one in my apartment. But now that I'm like going outside a little more, I'd like to actually get one. What was your introduction to the mace? So it was actually uh, kind of a weird story. It started when I was at the FMS. Um, Gray Cook was playing around with some Indian clubs. And so that was kind of where I first came upon those. And then I bought a pair, got his little book and DVD, went through some of the stuff. And, you know, I got the basics down a little bit. And then on Instagram, I just kind of stumbled upon a guy named Paul Wolkowinski, who I found a video of him doing just like really cool Indian club stuff. And so I followed him and day or two after that, he had a video of him swinging a traditional mace around. And I was like, man, that looks cool. I should, you know, learn that. I bought like, I think the first one I had was a 15 pound steel mace that I got from Onnit during one of their sales, tried it a few times. Wasn't really that good at it. I think it sat in my garage for probably four or five months before I even picked it up again. When I found uh, Rick Brown on Instagram and I saw some videos of him doing stuff and I was like, all right, let's try this again. Finally kind of got it. Realized that once you get the basics down, 
and you can get into either high reps or building up some weight, like my shoulders got a lot stronger, stopped having my right shoulder used to click when I was coming down from presses and stuff. And it stopped doing that. So it's allowed me to train a lot better for upper body stuff. And so ever since then, I started adding it in. I do them usually three or four days, either part of my workout or I might even just grab one and swing it around for five to 10 minutes as a warm up. But I found that it's definitely helped my shoulders and upper back when I'm doing heavy overhead stuff or even if I'm just hitting a punching bag for a while. Awesome. Would you, for, for listeners that aren't familiar with, with the mace or might've heard of like, say club bells, you mentioned Indian clubs, Indian club cert is actually where I met Matt for the first time back in 2011, Matt Furman. Um, I think a lot of the times Indian clubs in particular get just lumped in with maces or with club bells where it, it's sort of like a different goal. It's like circular strength training in a way, but it's mm-hmm. more on the restorative mobility side versus a mace or a club bell. Can you sort of discuss the differences on that? So in part of it, I mean, the Indian clubs and the club bells, I think I heard somewhere that Indian clubs were actually just like improperly named. And they were originally the same thing as the club bells. It was just obviously the much lighter version of them that were used, like you said, they're more of a mobility thing. They're used for high reps, whereas they would use the heavier ones for strength moves, where the same thing can be done with the mace. You can take a five or a 10 pound mace and do a lot of reps or some other movements with it. Or you can grab, you know, a heavy 35, 40 and do the real strength stuff. So I could be wrong about that. I think I read that somewhere that, you know, somebody way back, probably hundreds of years ago, decided that they were separate things because they were being used differently, even though at the time they were essentially the same thing. Yeah. But nowadays, definitely used differently. Even up in the heavy three, four, five pound Indian clubs are probably the heaviest you'll see where you might find a 35, 45 pound steel club. Yeah, listeners, uh, to, to clarify, if you've never seen any of these implements, like uh, an Indian club, a traditional one to two pound Indian club, say, imagine like a bowling pin or a juggling pin. That's somewhat what they look like um, on, a, on a first look thing. Most people like that don't know what they are will pick them up and go, oh, you're learning juggling? Oh, you're directing air traffic? Um, <laughs> club bells tend to get a little bit longer and look a little bit more like a metal baseball bat. Um and they get loaded, they get heavier. I believe they go everywhere from say five pounds to, I, I believe they go up to 45. I don't know if I've ever witnessed a 50. And I've then 45. And then uh, there's a guy named Ryan Pitts from Stronger Grip that makes adjustable ones that supposedly you can get up to about 65 or 70. Jesus. I don't know that I've seen anyone use one fully loaded, but I've heard that they can get to that. Done some strong stuff. And then the mace, imagine. Uh, like say a three to five foot pole with a metal or iron ball on the end of it. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. Traditionally. So those are sort of the three styles of what we're looking at. And the common factor of them is, is that we're really doing some sort of rotational strength or restoration where depending on whether we're just flowing and creating circles or if we're trying to control and add stability um, that's sort of the dividing line in the training, uh, in a really simplistic way. 
openly going to admit I have played around with club bells a little bit. Barry Danielian, who's uh, Danielian, who's been on the show, had a couple of sets at Five Points Academy I used to play with. And I've got mm-hmm. like Scott Sonnen's like encyclopedia of club bells, but um, no disrespect to Scott. The, the video uh, format just sort of bored me a little bit. So I, I stopped watching. Um, the information's there, not missing it. So I, I don't have a very deep view of it. And unfortunately, I was only in Texas so long that we didn't get to shoot videos or play around with it. And admittedly, I didn't want to like jack anything up before teaching or flying home. But yeah. um, Ben's got a nice like uh, quiver of heavy maces in his garage. Oh, yeah. Uh, can, I, can I ask you, can you shoot us a video of maybe like a 10 to two or something and we'll put it up on the coach Fury page, uh, as a little yeah. exclusive. So like people can see what they're, what we're talking about with the mace work. Yeah, for sure. And actually I'll do that in a little bit. Cause I was planning on doing some in my warm up in pretty much whenever we're done, I was going to go get a workout in. So I'll get some done then. Awesome. And, uh, is there a specific, I know you mentioned you got the on it one, but is there a specific brand you tend to like, like what should people look for? in a mace if someone's listening to this and they're starting to be like oh you know what that sounds kind of cool um maybe i'll go out and buy one because i honestly i i don't know i know of like uh you know i know of the on it brand i know you can get a bunch on amazon i don't know if it's like kettlebells mm. you know people ask like what's a great kettlebell a lot of them are just stamped from the same mold with a different logo on it uh, you know yeah. i do think rkcs are the best not because i'm uh an employee of dragon door. I just legitimately think they're the best, but I think there are other good options out there, but they all tend to be the same. Like, I feel like the, there's like the rogue mold and then they're sort of like, uh, the kettlebell Kings perform better. Uh, another company seems to use the same one and it's just the stamps. And that's not a diss on any of these companies. Um, they end up being priced relatively the same as well. Um, is there like something somebody should be looking for in a mace? Is there a brand? Is there, you know, for the sandbag, I always try to stress people to go to DVRT ultimate sandbag training. So you're actually getting from the creator, um, Mm -hmm. as opposed to a knockoff of one of Josh's Josh Hankins bags. Do you have a recommend Um, with these? And if you want to get super detailed on it, there are a few different styles, like the steel mace versus the more traditional or even like, Adex makes an adjustable one that's supposed to be the best if you're doing like the really long sets or even the competitions of 10 and 2. Um, I've never done any of that to me because I'm getting kind of good, but not like that in depth. They're all pretty similar. Um, like you said, on it's pretty standard. There's another brand called Garage Fit that I really like. They're almost identical, but they are a little bit cheaper. Okay. And Granted, I've only had one for five or six months, so maybe it'll wear down faster than the Onnit one, but at least in my experience, it hasn't gone downhill at all yet. What would wear so, down on a, on a club? On a mace, sorry. Um, depending on what you're doing, because I know some people will use them similar to sledgehammers as well, hitting tires and stuff, so I have heard of the heads coming off altogether. Yeah, that seems, that seems very odd to me. I, I noticed that I was looking at reviews of somebody, and all the complaints were that, like, how it didn't feel great against like smashing it on a tire. And it's like, why wouldn't you just get a sledgehammer for that? Like, yeah. And that's where I was going. Like I've never personally used them for that. I have a couple sledgehammers. So if I'm going to hit something with that, I'll just grab one of those. Um, I know a lot of the brands say you can do that, but to me it's, you know, using the wrong tool for that because 
to me, that's not what it is designed for, even if you can use it. I mean, you could hit one with a dumbbell or a kettlebell, but that's not what they're designed for. So, Yeah, it's like having a dumbbell next to a kettlebell and deciding to swing for no other reason than it's there deciding to swing the dumbbell. We're yeah. like, yeah, you can kind of do something, but you got the perfect item for it. Like a, a sledgehammer is made for hitting shit, you mm-hmm. know? So I could see, you know, if you can only invest in one, I would buy a mace over the sledgehammer because it does have more versatility. And then, you know, if that's all you have, maybe use it for that. But if you can get both, I would use the sledgehammer for hitting things. Yeah, let's be realistic. Like a sledgehammer is not an expensive item. I don't want to like put anybody in a weird, you know, struggle bus on that. But like, if you're if you're looking to invest to smash things and need a mace, you should probably be able to to get both to mm-hmm. differentiate or focus on your mace work until you can get the something to bash on. I don't mean that to come across judgmental, folks. I'm just going to throw that out there. That would just be my my thought process if I was buying gear for Fury Industries. Um, what would be like? What what was did, did any of your clients, your students, have a big aha with the mace? Like so, something they were struggling with, and suddenly. You know, you know, they were able to kind of give it a shot, get your trust on it, give it a shot and then see like an aha moment. We actually had one of my clients wanted to learn it. And so we were trying it out and we couldn't quite get her to get the movement path. She kept trying to do more of a chop almost rather than getting the full rotation. And we ended up using a kettlebell because once you get, I mean, obviously with the length, then the speed is going to be different, but your arm mechanics are very similar to a kettlebell halo. So I started having her start every set by doing those to get the feel for this is where the hands go. And within about 10 minutes of that, she went from chopping and hitting herself in the back to being able to do a pretty good Mace 360. Wow. So um, that that worked really well for her. Um, I actually recently taught my mom how to do it. And she's a bit smaller than me, so I was able to essentially hold the mace and move it and her hands through the right range of motion a few times just to get her the feel for the pathways. And then she actually picked it up surprisingly quickly after that. So I now, find... I, sorry, I didn't mean to cut, cut you off. Finish it up, Ben. Uh, I was just say I found, like, different things that work for different people, but it's, it's, down to wanting to try it. Sure. That's really cool. I love that you're doing it with your mom. And when you're like, she's not as tall as you tell people how tall you are. Uh, so I'm about six, four, my mom's <laughs> about five, six, maybe five, seven. <laughs> you just said it so subtly. Like she's like, you know, like a two inches shorter than me. Now <laughs> she's almost a solid foot shorter than you. Oh, my um, mother-in-law's about four inches shorter than me. So <laughs> you're gonna have big kids down the line, man. Oh yeah. Um, what would be a good, I know this is always comes out to, and it depends because people ask this on sandbags and kettlebells as well, but say like, I want to get a, um, or, you know, Cam want to get a mace. What, what's a good starting weight that you're not going to like run out of use for pretty quickly. Cause what usually the base low is usually like 10, 15, 20, 25. What do you think is mm-hmm. like a realistic solid starting point for somebody with like medium level strength? Um, for a woman, I would usually say 10 is a good starting weight for guys, 15 to 20. And I've actually found, um, kettlebell Kings makes a pretty good adjustable one. And Ryan Pitts from stronger grip 
makes a good adjustable one that I've recommended for people who want to do that. Because like you said, I have a ton of them. I have pretty much every size there is. But if you don't need, like if you're not working with other people where you might need four or five at the same time, the adjustable ones, the Kettlebell Kings one can be as low as about nine pounds up through 44. Um, I think going by about every two kilo. So that's a pretty good option for somebody who's just starting out and knows that they don't want to have a garage full of them. Cause then as you progress, you just add another weight to it, but it's beginning weight is light enough that you can start it without having to grit through stuff before you really have the form down. That's very cool. I, I think I might, I might invest in one. I'm actually going to go online and see what I can get. It, it's just, I want to do more stuff. Like I've been working on my kettlebell juggling outside trying to work yeah. on the hand eye. And I, and you know, I haven't been, there's certain things that I used to do more when I was at five points, like, you know, I've always kept up my Indian club practice because my shoulders just really need it. Um, mm-hmm. But since I haven't had those club bells around, I don't have the, you know, we don't, we didn't really have the space at MFF or anything like that. And, you know, my ceilings are low, but uh, mm-hmm. now that it's nice out, I feel like I want to try to do more outside, but I don't have enough space to actually be like crawling around, pushing, dragging um, directly outside, but I can be standing in place, swinging something that will also keep, you know, the occasional tweaker away. Yeah. Well, I was actually about to say, it's always pretty fun. I'll do it. I do have the room for it, but I like to just go stand in my front yard when I'm doing maces or kettlebells and, you know, kind of make sure the neighbors know I'm a little bit weird. So, yeah. Um, let's switch gears a little bit. That's awesome. By the way, I just, it, it, it was really cool to sort of, I've, I've known you doing maces since I've met you. Cause I remember you messing around with them a little bit. Um, Austin last year at DVRT. And I definitely have seen an increase, you know, Mike Krivka talks about them all the time now. Like there's definitely been a big rise in, in their use. So uh, it's cool to have some info on the show about them. Let's talk about like, just in general, Austin, Texas, what's the, what's the fitness scene like there? So we've got just tons of gyms, lots of, especially by Texas standards, lots of good things to do outdoors. If you go to Merkel, Texas, which is where my wife is from, you don't even want to be outside because, you know, you can go walk through a dirt field. Not to say that Merkel doesn't have things to do, but compared to that, like we've got the lake, we have some, a bunch of good hiking trails, jogging trails. You can go kayaking, stand up paddleboarding, um, some rock climbing. Growing up in Colorado, I wouldn't say that Austin's exactly a great place for rock climbing, at least compared to that. But there is a lot of good outdoor activity stuff to do. There's also a ton of gyms between, you know, commercial gyms all the way through, like, the box gyms and just regular garage gyms. But there are probably more options than you could ever need. There's no reason somebody couldn't find a gym that fit them if they wanted to find one here. Is uh and, and folks just I'm gonna throw it out there so I don't sound prejudiced about it. Like Austin, Texas is one of my favorite places in the world. And it's actually been a bummer that the last two times I've been out there, I've had to sort of rush home and not gotten to like hang out. Uh mm-hmm. Austin is a very unique scene. Brooklyners, if you're listening, imagine like a hotter, more spaced out um industry area of Bushwick. Not necessarily the neighborhoody part, but just um that part for a little bit just heavy arts 
kind of finding your own thing. And I know it's changing because we discussed this more last year that the tech industry has been moving in pretty heavy, but then they have mm. like nice homes and stuff too. And so you can ha- kind of have like a, a Brooklyn-y vibe a, with all this arts and music stuff going on. Uh, certainly there is a, seems to be a real big fitness scene out there. Mm-hmm. And then you could still like have a house, you know, and have some space. Not that they're like cheap because it's going up, but. Oh yeah. For it's sure. just a, a really unique environment. Um, I would say, especially for Texas, but especially from a lot of the other places that I've traveled to, uh, most places have like most towns you can find, like, you know, your scene, you can find where there's like a music scene in a record store or whatever, but some, some towns it's like real limited, maybe one or two shops, you know, or spots. And Austin's mm-hmm. just got a lot, a lot of variety of stuff, you know? Um, so it's really cool out there and it does seem there's a lot of fitness options and that, that outdoor draw, because, you know, you do have sort of extreme heat and, but you have this beautiful weather, you got Barton Springs, you got hiking trails and all that stuff. Do you find the weather makes it harder to draw people to come into a facility? Um, I don't, we haven't really noticed it too much here. We'll get some people every now and then that are just, you know, oh my God, this is too hot. Cause the gyms I work in, None of the places I work have air conditioning, but most of them, you know, will have the garage doors and some big fans. So you can get some cross ventilation. And I mean, I think it's a different kind of person that goes there in the first place compared to a 24 hour or a lifetime. And I think most of them are looking for that more. You know, I don't want to get heat exhaustion and die, but I want this, you know, I'm going to be sweaty. I'm going to know that I did something when I'm done. And so we'll have to make sure, obviously, everyone's drinking a lot of water and staying hydrated, but... That lack of AC is crazy. (laughs) Yeah. In the heat. Uh, uh, You know, it's like I consider myself moderately rugged. I mean, in terms of, like, you know, I don't want to poop outdoors. I need a bathroom. But, like, other than that, like, you know, like, I'm usually not, like, super sensitive to stuff like that. But, man, training in the heat all day... (laughs) <laughs> is, is when it's all day is a bit rough oh um, yeah but when i found out that you know matt doesn't have ac and you were saying your place doesn't have ac i'm like uh, you know that's just the thing i guess you know you could sell it as hot strength training out here bring that into the city you got a gimmick and you make a shitload of money yeah um you could just call it at austin atmospheric strength training that's a good <laughs> somebody should buy yeah, into that right now thing. I want 10%. Sounds good. (laughs) Well, Uh, let's talk about um, switch gears from Austin for a moment. Let's talk about one of the cooler things I found. Uh, Ben last year was buying a house, was in the process of buying his house, a house with his wife. And I got to stay there this year. And he's got this amazing uh, house designed by an architect um, that's uh, designed and peculiar in a wonderful way. And I don't mean peculiar, like anything off-putting and anything like it's very unique, I guess might be the better word. Um, and he was showing me around and then my favorite room in your place is you've got an amazing book collection. Tell, tell the listeners a little bit about your book collection. So I have, I would say probably about 1500 books. Um, there's a lot of horror stories, whether it's the, you know, traditional ones you think of Stephen King, Dean Koontz, or some really obscure ones that people might not have heard of. I actually, I was on a cruise less than a month ago for my parents' 35th anniversary. And while we were horseback riding, I happened to find out that 
one of the other people on our cruise excursion was a horror writer named Deborah LeBlanc, which was pretty cool because I'd read a couple of her books and I didn't recognize her at all until I heard her telling our guide that that was who she was. And then I was kind of the crazy little fan. I was like, oh, that's so cool. Can we get a picture together? <laughs> but Was she so surprised though? Yeah, she actually, her husband said that it made her day because she's, I mean, if you're a horror aficionado, people will recognize her name, but it's unfortunately, unless you are Stephen King or Dean Koontz, most people don't recognize as much of horror unless it becomes a movie, which I'm pretty sure none of her books have yet. I'm totally so, in that, in that, in that mold. Like I wouldn't, I, you know, I, I clearly know who Dean Koontz is, but I wouldn't, I don't know what he looks like whatsoever. You know, and when I think about you basically have the two big horror writers for me would be uh, Clyde Barker and Stephen King. And those are the, probably the only two faces that I can actually, two writers names mm-hmm. I can put a face to. So they must've been stoked. She must've been yeah. stoked to be like, Oh, somebody recognized me. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was super cool too. Cause I mean, to me, she's still famous. I don't care if anyone else heard of her or not. If I've read a book that she's had professionally published, she's famous to me. So I thought it was pretty awesome. That's great. Um, what, who, who's your favorite author within your collection? Folks, I, it's, it's like 1,500 books. It sounds like a lot, and it truly is. And if you saw in the room, it's like, it's really well organized. It doesn't look like a hoard at all. I don't want it to come across that. But it's like all of these bookshelves just packed with paperbacks, like just packed. Mm. And it's really impressive to see. And this is coming from a guy who, if you could see the video camera of me right now, as, as we're conferencing, has the Godzilla collection behind him. It's super, a super impressive collection. Um, who's your favorite author? Um, I really like Brian Lumley. He's a British author. He's written a couple series that, again, if you're in that stuff, uh, the Necroscope series was really well known. It's, sort of vampires but way better than twilight um he's also done a series called titus crow which kind of ties in with the cthulhu mythos for anyone that knows what that is it's possibly my favorite thing ever that's as far as like yeah so yeah i know i I would say i i should have thrown that out lovecraft would be the third of those three writers like i'm familiar with Mm -hmm. Uh, i still wish they would do more better adaptations and be bolder with Lovecraft, Lovecraft mm-hmm. uh, conversions to movies or TV. Diagon probably being the best one that I've seen, which I guess is a pretty old movie and I haven't seen how it holds up at this point. That was probably like early 2000s at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, did you ever hear, read any of Charlie Houston? I don't I know haven't if, yet. I don't know um, if he would fall traditionally as a horror writer. But he, he had a series of books called the Joe Pitt Case Books, which were kind of very real feeling in terms of like if you, if you knew the city well, Manhattan well, about being mm-hmm. like, you know, neighborhoods in the city. But, you know, he's sort of like a bouncer slash private eye um, slash muscle, but he also happens to be a vampire. And it talks about how like the city and Brooklyn and all that are, are, are you know, cordoned off into gangland territory of, you know, these underworld paranormal types. And it's a great mm. series of books. I guess there is horror theme because there are like zombie s things, ghost things, vampires and stuff. But maybe check that out. Yeah. The first one is uh, Already Dead. And it's like probably the last thing as an as a executive producer in visual effects land that I tried to option, but somebody already had mm. it and then nothing happened from it. Charlie oh. Houston would go on to write uh, a good run on Moon Knight. I didn't per- personally love it, but 
had a popular run on the Moon Knight comic book, which brought it back into in the light for a little while. But this is already going back like nine, ten years. So I don't know what he's up to lately. Yeah. Um, as we start to wind this down, because time has flown very, very quickly. What mm-hmm. else you got going on? Anything you want to discuss? Anything? Um, not too much. I'm actually, uh, I told you I'll be up there in September for a Mace and Indian Club workshop in Connecticut. So I'm looking forward to that. One of my clients, uh, Chris, the one that I use the kettlebells to help teach is going with me. So I apparently got her to like them well enough that she's going to do a workshop. Um, other than that, um, probably going to be starting working down at Matt's gym pretty soon at the Dow. Uh, oh, yeah. Just lots of changes in life that are making it seem like that's going to be the best option for me soon. So we'll have a little bit more unity down there and hopefully get you back out for something else before too long. Oh man, I'd love to, you know, and, and to be able to, I'd love to be able to like knock out a couple of days, be able to just hang out to, um, to actually get into downtown for a little bit as well. Although, uh, what is it? Red's port front porch. And, uh, and of course, uh, Torchy's tacos. Now that I can wear my fresh new Torchy's taco hat proudly. Um, and I do want to go to the home base, like the, uh, original Alamo draft house since that Mm -hmm. place has become such an important part of my life here. Uh, Hey Ben, where, where can people find you? Um, so like I said, most likely pretty soon I will be at the Dow health and fitness down in kind of South central Austin um for anyone that's anywhere else my instagram page is a good place to just catch up see what i'm doing see what my clients are doing it's b-e-n-j-i-m-1331 which is also the beginning of my email uh included with gmail if anyone wants to just get a hold of me and ask me any questions or anything like that awesome hey ben can you tell the listeners to die mighty die mighty Hey, dude, thank you so much for coming on. Folks, if you're in the Austin area or interested in May stuff, reach out to Ben. Again, I meet a lot of great people. It's one of the awesome benefits, not just of being like a, an instructor or getting to teach courses, but also in the fitness community. We meet a lot of people that are our peers that, um, you know, you can relate to, you can have a trust with, and people will often reference like, would you let your, you know, this person train your mom? yes, I would let Ben train my mom, but it usually doesn't have to be that severe. It's just like, that's a, he's a great coach. And I, I can not only see that he's able to do these things, but that he also knows how to progress and teach them and build people up with them. So uh, I've got a lot of respect for Ben. So check him out on his Instagram. Uh, I'll put that up in the show notes and listeners. Thank you so much. Uh, stay tuned for the next episode. Thanks brother. Yep. The Coach Fury Podcast is created, owned, and produced by Steve Coach Fury Holliner for Fury Industries, LLC. Music provided by the FTW. Visit the FTW.nyc for band, music, tour, and merch information. Artwork provided by Glenn Urieta. Visit glennurieta.com. That's G-L-E-N-N-U-R-I-E-T-A. Or visit him on Instagram at Glenn Urieta. Thanks, everybody.